It is Tuesday, July 7th, 2020. I'm Kevin Williams. This is the LDS Podcast. If you want to leave me feedback, please don't hesitate to do so. Kevin W. at LDSLifePodcast.com. That's Kevin W. at LDSLifePodcast.com. Don't forget to like the page on Facebook and also on Twitter, even though I have not updated the Twitter account in quite some time. I don't know why, folks. I just don't like Twitter. And no, it is not because Donald Trump is on Twitter, because I've never really taken a liking to Twitter. But you know what? I had to update it one of these days because a lot of people are on Twitter, um, including Donald Trump. Although Twitter is starting to censor a lot of conservatives, but uh, until it censors me, I'll be on it. Now, some people say, oh, Kevin, you need to think of an alternative to Twitter in case that happens. Well, well, they're not wrong. I'm just not a fan of Twitter. But nonetheless, this is the LDS Live podcast, and I'm Kevin Williams. All right, uh, the temple in Orm is going to be, the, the, the church is going to break ground for the temple in Orm. That'll be on September 5th. The building will be three stories high on 16 acres, and it'll be approximately on 1471 Geneva Road. So I think that's, uh, that's exciting news. And it'll be west of I-15, south of University Parkway. You know, it'll be really nice when we get back to church again. I know uh, here in Montana... I've just gotten word that uh, we're supposed to be meeting in church again, uh, hopefully, uh, well, I guess this coming Sunday, July 19th, we're actually supposed to meet. I'll, I'll have to let you know how it goes. I know it'll be an abbreviated sacrament meeting, 45 minutes only. Um, hopefully one of these days we'll get back to a normal schedule, whatever that normal schedule is, two hours, I don't know. It's very unpredictable at this time what the schedule will be. I know that there's going to be, there's four phases. But you know what? I'm excited to get back to normal. Is there going to be a new normal and it'll never be before it was on March 14th? My guess is probably, but we'll see. Nonetheless, it'll be exciting to have uh, groundbreaking, uh, the groundbreaking for the LDS Temple. Like I said, it'll be on, it'll be three stories, 16 acres, and actually, there's going to be a meeting house that will be 20,000 square feet. I understand it's going to be, the way I understand it, it's going to be across from the, across the temple parking lot. And actually, this is nothing new. I served my mission in Canada, and there was a, the same situation happened in Canada where it was, uh, twenty. Uh, uh, there was a small temple in Halifax, Canada, and it was there was a church. The stake center was actually right across the parking lot. It was actually interesting because I'm getting sidetracked here, but we'll get back here. We'll get back to uh, the broadcast, the podcast, I should say. It was interesting because my companion, I during transfers, I had a new companion, and I can't see, I'm blind, and so he was driving, and he got lost, and 
he got into a parking lot and we found out, oh, we're at the, the, the temple when it was being constructed in 1999 over there at the Canada-Halifax Mission. It was kind of cool. So the groundbreaking ceremony is only going to be, uh, only a certain amount of people will be attending it. I'm not sure who, but I'm sure we'll find out all the information. Meanwhile, the Tavernacle Choir broadcast for this July of 2020, the Pioneer Celebration, will be pre-recorded. The broadcast will happen on the 18th of July at 7 p.m. Mountain Time. It'll be at broadcast.churchofjesuschrist.org. It'll be on the Tavernacle Choir's website. And uh, that website, by the way, is the Tavernacle choir.org that's the tabernaclechoir.org it'll also be on the tabernacle choir's youtube channel and on the tabernacle choir's facebook page also if you open the skill tabernacle choir on your smart speaker device i don't want to say the name well i guess i could say amazon echo hopefully you don't have the Hopefully you don't have that smart speaker set to Echo. But if you have it on Amazon Echo, you can just uh, open the skill. Choir skill is what it says here. Choir skill. Um, also, while we're on this subject, I want to give you a quote here from Gerald. I think his last name is Kase. He says the following. Gerald Casse said, music is, an, uh, music, is an, oh, music is an international language. Sacred music is particular sacred music particularly. So let me read that again. Gerald Casse said, music is an international language, sacred music in particularly. When the choir sings, there is no language anymore. There is no language anymore. <clears throat> there are also, well, I'm paraphrasing this last part, there are also no borders. Music is a way the church can reach out. Uh, let's say music is a way the church, music is a way for the church to reach out. Sorry, my computer's acting weird. I've got a uh, Braille Note tablet here that I'm reading off. It's acting a little funny. But music is a way for the church to reach out to all world, to all the world, all people, and communicate with them from the heart. Now, let me say some things about the, the uh, Tabernacle Choir at Temple Square broadcast because I went and saw it. Uh, let's see, when's the last time I went and saw that? That would have been back in 2016. So I do have some things to say about that. Number one, it is a very spiritual experience. Now I saw it when we were called when it was called the Mormon Tabernacle Choir. It's obviously changed since then to the Tabernacle Choir at Temple Square. I went and saw it live quite a few times. In the summers, they used to have it before this COVID nineteen virus hit. They used to have it. In the conference center.
And then in the fall and the winter and uh, in the spring, they have it at the tabernacle. I've seen it in both places. I think it's a much more spiritual experience when, in fact, you actually watch it in the tabernacle. I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's because the tabernacle's been around for well over a century. I Well, yeah, uh, I don't know. I don't know what it is. I, I don't know if it's because the tabernacle is smaller and it's more intimate, but the spirit is a whole lot stronger when you are watching it at the tabernacle. The conference center, it can be spiritual, but not as much. And it could be just me. But I want to talk about music being the language of the world, especially sacred music. Let's just talk about music in general. You know what? We can have our political differences. We can even have radical differences. We can have social differences. Maybe somebody doesn't agree on LGBT issues. Two people have radical disagreements on LGBT issues. Maybe there's uh, major differences between you and someone else on Black Lives Matter, which, by the way, we're going to cover here in a few minutes. But you know what? There's one thing that I have noticed that can unify us, and that is music. Maybe you have a radical disagreement, you and another person on Black Lives Matter, LGBT issues, President Trump, you name it. But I have noticed in my 40 years of living, there is one thing that I can find common ground with people on, and that is music. Let me give you an example. I have been around people that do not share my viewpoints on politics, but yet we might like grunge rock from the 90s. We might like Pearl Jam, Nirvana. We might like Alice in Chains. We might like, uh, what's another band? Mudvayne. You know, then we can talk about music. I know some people that are pretty, or that have been pretty promiscuous, and they're not members of the church. You bring them to a tabernacle choir concert, for the most part. I'm not saying this is true for everybody this way, but you bring a lot of those people to a tabernacle choir concert, they will tell you that they felt something special. So I think Gerald uh, Cosse, I think is how you pronounce his last name, I think he's correct in the fact that music is a great unifier. And it's a great icebreaker, too. I've noticed when I, when I was a customer service representative at Verizon Wireless, and I had irate customers call in, there were times where I would just start mentioning band names, bands, you know, names of bands, names of people like Bobby Brown, Whitney Houston, Guns N' Roses, Mint Condition. Once I mentioned those people and bands, the conversation went from being an irate conversation or an irate customer to somebody that actually liked me. That was a great icebreaker. When I was a kid, 
My mom used to tell, well, I wasn't a kid. I was in junior high. And uh, we're going to get back to the news, but I want to emphasize how music unifies us here. When I was in junior high, I was not your typical junior high kid. Especially when I was 14. When I was 14, I was into talk radio big time. Back then, of course, you had Rush Limbaugh, but you had different talkers back then, like G. Gordon Liddy, Ken, Han- Ken Hamblin, Chuck Harder, Jerry Hughes. Um, I'm trying to think of some others. Bruce Williams, although I wasn't a huge Bruce Williams fan, but I would listen to him just a little bit from time to time if I happened to run on, uh, stumble upon a station that he was on at the time I was channel surfing. You had Art Bell, Coast to Coast AM. And Judy Jarvis, a whole bunch of talk shows just during that time when I was 14, 15. A whole bunch of people. And my parents would tell me, oh, nobody your age cares about talk radio, Rush Limbaugh, politics. And I came home, and uh, it was during uh, an evening on the weekday. It would have been, I believe, in October. Somebody called my house and talked to my mom. It was a what we called a vision teacher. It was a guy that would come and transcribe my assignments and such in Braille before we had all this great technology. Well, we had it back then, but I didn't have much exposure to it until a year later. So I was still using a Perkins Brailler. And this guy would write out my assignments. And I actually had, uh, he actually taught me math that particular time. Well, anyway, he called my house, and I knew that my mom was talking about me because I could hear her even from my upstairs bedroom while I was doing some homework. And after that, my mom called me down and said, people are worried about you at school, talking particularly about teachers. I'm not socializing, whatever. And I, I said, Mom, people make fun of me for what I talk about. What do you talk about? I talk about politics. Oh, no one's interested in politics at your age. Talk about sports. Most boys your age are into sports. Well, I wasn't into that either, but you know what? I found, and it didn't take me long, I found I could talk about music with the rest of them, with the rest of my classmates pretty well. And the more I got diverse to music, the better the conversation was. In fact, I guarantee you with those same classmates, I can have a better conversation about music today than I could back in 1994. Why? Well, because I've learned a whole lot more since 1994 and I've heard a lot more albums since 1994. But the point is, music can really unify us. And I think Gerald's right, sacred music can really unify us as well. So I hope that you can enjoy the Tabernacle at Temple Square broadcast. And by the way, that broadcast will be rebroadcasted on BYU-TV on Sunday night at 5 p.m. So if you happen to have BYU-TV on your cable system, your satellite provider, because I do know they are on Dish Network and DirecTV, or if you have it on Roku, whatever, Enjoy the broadcast. I might even listen to it, actually. We'll see. It's possible. The missionary, uh, this is a little bit of an old art- older article, but I do want to touch on this because it has some significance, I think. 
the missionaries have a new dress standard. This is for the elders anyway. The dress standard is as follows. They can wear blue shirts. So not only can they wear white shirts and ties, but they can wear blue shirts and ties or just blue shirts as long as you have slacks. As you know, the sisters, the sister missionaries, their policy changed back in 2018. Well, now it's time for the elders to change. I don't know why the change, to be honest. But I will say this. I was a missionary in Nova Scotia, Canada from 1999 to 2000. And I'm not kidding, folks. If I had it my way, we would have been proselyting in Levi's and uh, either a button-down conservative shirt, whether it was short sleeve or long sleeve, or uh, very, very nice shorts in the summer. And why is this? You may think I'm crazy. No, I'm not. I'll tell you why. I'll bet you... A lot of people, especially people who were my age back then in 99, 2000, were very intimidated by us approaching them in a white shirt and tie. It was not unusual for us to go knocking and somebody in their early 20s, late teens would answer the door. Also, I had a friend that served a mission around the same time as I did in Poland. And he had a hard time because in Poland, people associate people with white shirts and ties or suits and ties with the mafia because that's who was running Poland back then, the mafia, the communists before that. I wonder if that's part of the, part of the reason of the change. Also, in light of what we've been seeing lately with the Black Lives Matter, which we're going to cover here shortly, that could be another reason for the change. I don't have a problem with the change. I think it's well overdue, to be honest, for reasons that I had mentioned. Now, the missionaries will be told about these changes through the mission president, and the area authority has to let the mission president know. So I'll be interested to, I'll be interested to see just how many mission... I'll be interested to see just how many mission presidents and area authorities endorse this change. I think it's a good thing. I really do. Again, I, I don't know specifically why the change, but I have some I think I have a pretty good idea. All right, Peggy Peggy Fletcher Stack wrote an article last week about the church not doing enough to solve racial problems. I'm just going to paraphrase this article and talk about it. But uh, in the article, it mentions the fact that the uh, NAACP leaders, Leon Russell and Derek Johnson, got together with uh, President Nelson back in 2017 and agreed to cooperate in things such as self-sufficiency, money management, and employment. These uh, people, Derek Johnson and Leon Russell, of course, are leaders of the NAACP. Well, in June of, la of this year, so last month, President Nelson gave a statement that basically said that we are all 
brothers and sisters of our Heavenly Father. I'm paraphrasing this, that we are all brothers and sisters of God. We are all God's children, regardless of race and background. And in the uh, statement, he encouraged us to repent if we have had any prejudice against a certain people of skin color. He also talked about how it is important to reach out to people who have different backgrounds than us. And you know what? This is something I had to start working out a little bit more. I used to have a lot of uh, friends in college that had different backgrounds, and just because of the situation of mine, it's changed so much since then. I don't really have an opportunity to associate with people that have different backgrounds other than me. And when I say different backgrounds, I'm talking about people that might have been a lower economic status than me or people who might be of a different skin color. But Peggy Fletcher Stack and others think that the church needs to apologize for the wrongdoing of race. And many people think that President Nelson's wording was not enough. He thinks, or the many people think, not President Nelson, but many people think President Nelson should apologize. Now, I'm going to insert my opinion here. I don't think President Nelson needs to apologize. Will he? Who knows? Will the church apologize that black people couldn't receive the priesthood until 1978 and any other wrongdoing? Who knows? Would it surprise me? No. However, I don't think it's necessary. The fact that President Nelson encouraged us to repent and move on is a good thing. And I'm going to make a lot of people upset with me, but this is honestly how I feel. I don't know anyone an apology for the way that the white race has treated African Americans. I didn't do anything highly despicable. In fact, when I was in the South back in 2004 to 2005, I went out of my way to be nice to African-American people. In fact, I actually hired an African-American girl to be my reader, and she actually drove me around to go shopping and things like that. Yes, I did a lot of shopping on my own, but there were times I needed to go out of the way. As long as I let her know a day or two ahead of time, we would go shopping. She was very good at her job. She was a very good reader. What I had her do is read my mail uh, because I didn't have the technology to read mail for me back then. So I had her come over and read my mail, and I took a college prep class, so I'd have her read me short stories and things like that. She was a very hard worker. You know, you want to know why I hired her, by the way? Because back then, and by the way, I'd still hire her if she's around, if she was up in Montana or wherever I was at. She was very, very, very reliable. Very good worker. But you know why I hired her? This is the honest truth. Back then. I hired her because I read so much about how white people treated black people, so much in the history books. 
when I was in college and high school. When I moved to Louisiana, I thought, here is my chance to prove to people that I am going to give African Americans a chance. Now, some would say that I was wrong in doing that, and I should just hired her because she was good. Well, that is why, but I have to admit, at the time, the fact that she was African American played into it because I wanted to show her and others that I'm a nice white guy. Fortunately, I hired a good one, but I have changed since then, and yes, racism is wrong. Yes, segregation and slavery was wrong. But I don't feel like I need to apologize. Have we forgotten the article of faith that says we believe that man shall be punished for their own sins and not for Adam's transgressions? I think we have. Now, some people will say, well, Kevin, uh, black people didn't receive the priesthood until 1978, and uh, people said that it was because black people were related to Cain. Yes, that's true. And yes, that's contrary to what we've been taught, isn't it? There are some things that we don't understand. There are some things, I, I agree, that the church did harm to the African-American community before 1978. But you know what? We have to move on from that. We can't keep dwelling upon it, which is why I don't think the church needs to apologize. I think the very fact that President Nelson encouraged us to repent is good enough, I believe. I think that if you do your best to be kind to everybody, regardless of skin color, income, I think you will be fine. Obviously, there might be times where you have to defend yourself. Obviously, there might be times when you have to confront people. But I think by and large, if you do your best to be kind to one another, and try to overcome these racial barriers. We can go a long ways. And the church doesn't need to come out with an, a public apology. That's my opinion. And we have to figure out how to get over these barriers. Let me tell you something. As a blind person, I know all about discrimination. Let me tell you, I know all about discrimination. You know how many times I've applied for a job and got turned down? Probably because I'm blind. They didn't want to hire blind people, a blind person. And it was the same rhetoric every single time. Oh, our software doesn't work with your screen reader, and we're going to have to pay a bunch of money to get the screen reader to work with the software. It was the same story every single time. Now, that was probably true, but I think the fact is they just didn't want to hire me because it would take too much effort on their behalf to change over a few things. Or maybe they just didn't want to hire me because I'm blind. That is discrimination in my book. Am I running around demanding that the companies who I interviewed for demand an apology for not hiring a blind person? No. 
Do I think it's necessary? No. Do I think we need to continue to educate people about blindness? Absolutely. And I hope I can do that every day, somehow or another. I can't tell you how many times I've been walking around town alone, not so much up here in Billings, but in, when I lived in Salt Lake and other places, how many times I walked around town. Oh, you're amazing. I, I can't believe you figured this out. And I just uh, smile and tell people, well, I've had a lot of training. But, you know, there's uh, little kids, and I, I've witnessed this firsthand. There's little kids that might be scared of me because of the way my eyes look, and I don't have my glasses on for one reason or another. And so they'll go to their parents, and their parents will give them a hug and say, it's okay, he's blind, his eyes look a little different, and then they come back to me. And after a while, the little kids like me. You see, I know all about uh, discrimination. I think we have to figure out ways that we can constructively solve the problem without violence. Without changing names of buildings because so-and-so was a racist. We're going to talk about that very thing right now. Last week, in the Religion News Service, Jana Reeves wrote a column talking about basically how the church needs to do better at mending things. And one of those things that the church can do, this is according to Jana Reeves, the Religion News Service, is change the name of certain buildings. For example, Abraham Smoot. Abraham Smoot was one of the first people on the board of trustees at BYU. And what did he do? Well, apparently, according to this article, uh, Abraham Smoot was instrumental in having Brigham Young secure the state of Utah to be a slave state. Well, that didn't work, obviously, for a couple reasons. Number one, Utah became a state in 1896, long after slavery was illegal. But I, and technically, at that time, when Utah was a territory named Deseret, technically, slavery was legal. So, here again, I don't think the name of the building is necessary, but we'll talk, we'll talk about that in a few minutes. Also, she recommended that the J. Reuben Clark building be changed because J. Reuben Clark apparently advocated for separate blood banks that African Americans have their blood bank and white people have theirs. Then she went on to say that the Mormon, or, well, okay, the it was back then, I guess, the Tabernacle at Temple Square, back then known as the Mormon Tabernacle Choir, did a lot of harm because, oh, uh, yeah, J. Reuben Clark, she recommended, uh, just so you know, that the J. Reuben Clark Law School change its building or change its name because J. Reuben Clark was advocating for... Um, was advocating for the blood banks to be segregated. So in other words, white people would have their own blood bank when they donated blood, black people would have theirs. Well, then she went on to say that back then the Mormon Tabernacle Choir did a lot of harm to black people because they sang 
in front of George Wallace, who was a presidential candidate in 1968, who, in fact, was a segregationist and ran on the segregation platform. I don't think it's necessary for any... I don't think it's necessary... For BYU to change their buildings, first of all, it'd be rewriting history. And this is a definite Marxist tactic. And this Marxist tactic thinking has bled over into the Church of Jesus Christ Latter-day Saints, which I think is very unfortunate. Will BYU change their names and will they cave? I wouldn't be surprised because BYU is getting more and more liberal. So it wouldn't surprise me. I hope not. And I don't think it's necessary. Oh, Jana Reeves also went on to mention that uh, they need to change the chemistry building at BYU because it's uh, named after President Benson. And President Benson, supposedly, I have not found this anywhere. I looked and looked and looked. Supposedly, President Benson was against civil rights and advocated for segregation in General Conference in 1968. We're going to talk about President Benson here in a minute because thanks to Jana Reeves, I actually did some research on President Benson. We're going to negate this, at least the uh, civil rights parts. I don't think he did. I don't think he did advocate for segregation. I could not find a talk anywhere that said that he did. I looked. Now, I'll admit, I don't have access to conference talks before 1970, at least not in the Gospel Library. However, I can buy an SD card from somebody that I know that has conference talks going clear back to the 1940s. So if I ever get that SD card, I will definitely play around with it. But the problem is when you change what what extent do we need to change these names? How how far do we go with this? Are we going to change the name BYU? There's people advocating that we change the name BYU because Brigham Young was a bigot. How far does this go? We're living in a 1984 society. This is what's scary. We're living in a 1984 society where people want to cha uh, tear down statues without even knowing the facts. For example, people want to tear down uh, Thomas Jefferson and George Washington's statue because they were slaves, or they were slave owners. Well, you know what? In George Washington's will, he actually advocated for his slaves to be free and taken care of when he dies. I'll bet you didn't know that, did you? Did you know that Thomas Jefferson took very good care of his slaves and his slaves actually liked him? See, this, this is what gets ridiculous. People want to tear down Brigham Young's statue because, no, oh, Brigham Young was a racist and a bigot. It is true that Brigham Young did not speak very complimentary of black people. Uh, there's actually a book that I've read about, uh, it's actually sold by Deseret Book. And I'm not saying what Brigham Young said was right, 
But you got to look at the time period back then. It wasn't just Brigham Young. Some of the apostles did not think black people should receive the priesthood, and some of them didn't have a lot of good things to say about black people. Gosh, you want to go far on this, folks? Let me tell you a story, and I, 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 I'm going to use the N-word because I am quoting somebody. I'm not a fan of using the N-word, but I'm going to use it here because I am quoting somebody. And the person who I'm quoting is dead, so I think I'm okay. Did you know? Well, you probably didn't know. My grandmother on my dad's side was a bigot. This is well known. I think my grandfather was too, but my grandmother especially. Did you know that when my father would touch a penny when he was a little kid, my grandmother would say, don't swallow that because a nigger probably touched it. Again, I'm quoting. I'm not trying to use a racial slur because I'm a bigot. I'm quoting somebody. She would actually say, quote, don't swallow that penny because a nigger probably touched it, end quote. That is racist. But the point is, my grandmother was a racist. Should, okay, so should we as a family then get rid of all of her pictures just because of that? I submit to you, absolutely not. But we've gotten so touchy-feely about race and so sensitive about it. It's become, it's gotten ridiculous. Let's talk about my grandmother, since I did bring her up. We'll talk about Brigham Young and President Benson and why these buildings are named after certain people and whatnot, because I did a lot of research, especially on President Benson. Believe it or not, I'm actually very intrigued with President Benson because of his interest in politics and serving as Secretary of Agriculture back in the 50s. I'm very intrigued with President Benson. President Benson is someone I would love to meet in the next life. That would be a very, very, very interesting conversation for me. Very interesting. I hope I do get to meet him in the next life. And I hope I do get to have political discussions with him because I have a lot to say. There's a lot of things that President Benson said politically that I actually agree with him on. There's some things I don't agree with him on politically that I'd like to talk about. But believe it or not, I'm actually in agreement with a lot of what he said politically back then. But that's beside the point. The point is, let's just talk about my grandmother since I brought her up. My grandmother, I had a very good relationship with as a kid. Very good relationship. And so when I found out, when I found this out, that my, you know, my dad told me this a few weeks before I went on, about a month before I went on my mission. Did I get all... I'm just going to you. Did I get all pissed off because, oh, my gosh, my grandmother said something that bad. She's a racist. I should disown her. No. Am I shook up about it today? No. Do I want to erase my grandmother from my life? Absolutely not. No. My grandmother was a wonderful person. She just had to, she just had that particular flaw about her. So did other people. Times were different back then. But tearing down these statues and renaming these buildings would be exactly the same thing as me 
or any other family member getting rid of any picture with my grandmother in it. It's the same thing. You know, I could say that my grandmother was a bigot and racist, and which is true. But you know what? My grandmother and I had a very good relationship. Let me tell you some of the things that my grandmother and I did just to prove a point, and then I'll relate this to Brigham Young and a whole bunch of people and President Benson. When I was seven years old, I decided I wanted to get into radio. Well, we lived in Ontario, Oregon, and my grandparents lived in Salt Lake. So I'm sure my dad probably said something about, oh, Kevin wants to get into radio now, because before that I used to want to be a well digger. And uh, then I decided I, I liked radio. So I'm sure that my grandmother found out through my dad or one of my siblings or somebody that I wanted to get into radio. Let's go to, I believe it was the last, yes, it was the last weekend of May of 1988. Um, in fact, I'm going to do a little bit of an experiment here. Hang on. This might be an interesting experiment. Now, I'm going to use... Uh, the Echo's name. So if you have the Echo turned on at your place, this will be an interesting experiment. Let me just see how this works here. Alexa, what date was the last Sunday of May in 1988? No. Alexa, when was the last Sunday in May of 1988? Okay, well, I can't get it to work. I'm not going to play around with it. But let's go to the uh, last Sunday of May in 1988. I'll tell you what happened. My sister had graduated from high school. My youngest sister, not the youngest child, but the my youngest sister. I'm the youngest, but my sister, my youngest sister, who's three years older than me, my brother... And my grandmother, I don't know if my cousin was there or not. I, I do not remember her being there. But certainly my cousin, my grandparents, or my, uh, my youngest sister, my grandparents, and my brother were all sitting at the bar stool on a Sunday night, the last Sunday of May, 1988. My sister had one of these, um, uh, you may have seen those plastic balloons that are full of helium, but you can't... Uh, it's hard to, I don't even think you can undo them once they're done. I guess you could, but I don't, I've never figured out how. But you probably know what I'm talking about. They're plastic blown up balloons and you can get a hold of them and they're not all the way blown up, but they're blown up enough. Well, you know what I did? I started talking into the balloon as though it was a microphone and pretending to do my very first newscast. This is when I was eight years old. Then I did a talk show called Cracker to Cracker right after the newscast. And it was one of those shows I pretend to be the callers, the voice of the callers. We just talked about silly things like, oh, I'm afraid of the dark. What should I do? Or, oh, I tasted this food. What do you think? We just kind of had, I just kind of had fun with it. Well, guess what? A couple weeks later, I was staying at my grandparents' house. In fact, I spent uh, 
two weeks of that summer just being bounced around from my grandparents on my dad's side to my grandmother on my mom's side. It was fine. I didn't mind being bounced around. That's just how it was. You know, they all wanted to see me, so, okay, you're staying with your grandmother today. Oh, you're staying with uh, your grandma and grandpa today. Okay. I just was bounced around back and forth between those two sets of grandparents. Well, my grandmother and my grandparents on my dad's side. That's just how it was when I'd go see them alone. I did that well. When I went and saw them and... You know, being the youngest, probably, and being blind, they all, so I just how it was. I was bounced around between grandparents. It was fine. But when I was staying at my grandmother's house on my dad's side, you know what she had me do? When company would come over and eat dinner, she would have me pretend to do a newscast and a radio, a talk show, after dinner was over. We all had a good time, and... I'd have whoever was at dinner pretend to call in and ask a silly question. and we, we just had fun with it. The point is, I'm not going to let a racial slur that my grandmother was notorious of doing interfere with my opinion about her. Much like we should not let Brigham, what Brigham Young said about African Americans or did or didn't do interfere with what we think about him. Brigham Young did a lot of good things for the Salt Lake area. Was he perfect? No. In fact, there were a lot of people who worked for Brigham Young that had hurt feelings. Uh, Brigham Young, according to uh, some of the books out there about him and uh, even some of the active Latter-day Saints that have had a lot of history of Brigham Young and their, a lot of volumes of his writings or whatever, would tell me that he was a ruthless businessman and took advantage of a lot of people. But look at the good that Brigham Young did. He laid out a grid system. Did you know that Brigham Young thought of the idea, well, it wasn't his idea originally, but he started the first department store west of the Mississippi because there were a bunch of places back east that had department stores. So Brigham Young wanted something similar to that. You may not have known that. Why? Because of the agenda that the people on the left have. Let's talk about President Benson because Jana Reeves suggests that the chemistry building be named after someone else because President Benson was against civil rights. That is not true. I actually read a talk, and this was from 1967 that I found off the Internet. President Benson was not against civil rights. He was against the way that civil rights was being handled in this country back then, with violence. He was against a lot of the tactics that were, and uh, the he felt that the African American community was being used. In fact, he spelled out. I just want to read this to you. I want to read to you, if I can find it. What he determined was wrong was civil rights. One of those things was to trigger hatred. The other thing was to 
trigger violence. And the last thing was to overthrow the government. And he said that the African-Americans back in the 60s were being used for such things. And actually, I don't think President Benson is far off. In fact, uh, that's uh, the, 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 the uh, descriptions that he gave sounds like a rules for radicals tactic. And it sounds like the tactic that Antifa and Black Lives Matter is using today. When he talks about hate, he talks about, you know, certain organizations spreading false rumors about people. He talked about, uh, you know, getting angry mobs together and just go on the streets. It doesn't matter if the protest is peaceful. And then when he talked about violence... Oh, well, back to this mob thing. He said it doesn't matter if the protest is peaceful or not. Just get the mob together and overwhelm the streets, overwhelm the police to the point where they cannot do their job effectively. And that went right into violence, you know, trigger violence. There are groups there that are well-disciplined to have tactics to mobilize people. And then he talked about overthrowing the government, which has not happened in our country yet. I hope it doesn't. And then he went on to say that many black people were being used and don't hate black people because of this. So he's telling us back in 1967 at a general conference that he was concerned and against the way that civil rights was handled. He specifically said in that talk that he was not against civil rights. And I actually heard him in a speech off of YouTube several years ago when he was defending an organization called the John Birch Society, which uh, you may or may not like them, but he was defending them. And in that speech, he actually said, we want civil rights, but we don't want the government to interfere with it. In other words, we don't want the government to get involved in these tactics that I just mentioned, unless it's to defuse the situation. He was also concerned, I would imagine, I haven't uh, read this, but I would imagine he was very concerned about the Civil Rights Act of 1968 because there were things in there that, violated states' rights. And let's remember, President Benson was a purist when it came to the Constitution. If you need any evidence of that, look up what he was trying to do for the sec as the Secretary of Agriculture. President Benson was trying to get rid of subsidies. The way that it works is uh, farmers are paid a certain amount of money to not plant grain, whether it be wheat, and cor wheat or corn. Well, President Benson was trying to get rid of those subsidies and make the farmer choose whether to plant or what to do with his or her, well, with his farm, because with his farm. So it was obvious that he was a pure constitutionalist. But let's talk about some of the good things that President Benson did and why this building, this chemistry building, 
is probably named after President Benson. President Benson went to Europe in 1946. January 29th, 1946, he left to London, England. That's where he was headquartered. His mission was to revive the church back there in Europe. Because remember, there was a world, we just finished World War II. So he went back there. Did you know that he was responsible for over 92 boxcars of food and bedding to get to the saints of Europe? And I wouldn't be surprised if other people got uh, were, uh, received those things as well. Other people meaning the average citizens of Europe who were not LDS. I wouldn't be surprised they benefited from this. President Benson was really distraught when he saw people, uh, especially the saints, combing the ditches to put water in the ditches, and they had cereal and chicken feed that they were eating. Now, to me, that is disgusting. And I'm sure it was to the members. But if you're in a country where you're starving, there probably is a point where you will eat just about anything. And President Benson saw this kind of behavior going on between church meetings. And it's not because the people were dumb. It's not because the people were bad. They just needed something to eat. And there was a major food shortage in Europe at that time. People were starving. So they did the best they could. President Benson had a lot of compassion. In fact, he wrote his wife one day talking about how people were combing the ditches and people were digging for firewood or people were digging the tree stumps for fuel. Uh, that is firewood in the, uh, the occupancy of Germany where the occupancy was. And you could tell just by watching the YouTube video, which is in the show notes, President Benson was very distraught over this, as anybody with any moral conscience would be. President Benson uh, had a, was very persistent. Did you know, for example, that when he went to Paris, he had to go to Germany and he spoke with uh, one of the high-up leaders in the United States that was in charge of foreign affairs back there in Europe. He spoke to a colonel and said, "I need to get. I need to get to. Uh, I need to get to. Ger I need to get to Germany." And the colonel just kept telling him no. And President Benson was really persistent. Elder Benson at the time was very persistent and said. Well, I need to get there. Can I get a car? And then the colonel gave in and said, yes, if you, you can get a car. If you can get your own car, we'll let you in. And so he did. He found a car and got in. It was that way when he went everywhere, it seemed like. When he went to go to the occupancy of, journal, of uh, Germany, he went to, he was in Frankfurt and had to talk to a four-star general there. Uh, general McNardy, I believe, was his name. He went and talked to him. 
at first he was denied. Then he was, uh, then he said to the people with him, we, we need to pray about this. They went back to the car that they were in and they prayed and they tried it again. A different aide showed up and the general was there. General McCarty was really annoyed with President Benson. And President Benson, uh, back then Elder Benson was just talking and talking and talking. And this general said, well, I don't know what it is about you, but I like you. We'll let you in, but we're not going to be responsible because it's unsafe to be there. But you can go in if you wish. Then President Benson, at some point in the conversation, I'm not sure if it was before the general said this, but at some point President Benson uh, talked to the general about a warehouse that the church had all the food and they could easily ship it to Europe. And I think that's why. There were other people benefiting from food, not just the members of the church, but average citizen benefiting from food and bedding. President Benson was very compassionate towards these people, as he should have been. You know, and then he was, uh, uh, before that, I believe, he, he yeah, before that, he was a secretary of the co-op districts in Washington, D.C., then... He was over the Food Institute of Emergencies, I believe is what it was called. The point is, though, we have to overlook some of these other things when it comes about race. And I know it's easy for me to say as a blind, as a, a white person, some of you are thinking, but there's a lot of black people that agree with me, too. And I'm not talking about black members of the church. I'm just talking about black people in general that I have talked to. We have to get over this, and we cannot be tearing down statues just because somebody said something. What does it say in the Bible? Forgive seven plus seven hundred times, right? Maybe we need to be more forgiving. Now, of course, there's cases where people need to be punished according to the law and such, but in this case, I think we need to be more forgiving and understanding and figure out ways to constructively overcome the racist issue that has that uh, has begun ever since man was put on the earth racism has always been a problem it always will be there's always going to be racism until the second coming but you know what there's ways that we can defeat this there's ways that we can come together, white people, black people, Hispanic, there's ways we can come together without being violent, without damaging statues, without name-calling. There's a lot of things that we can do. By the way, a Chad Daybell update. Uh, Chad Daybell's preliminary hearing is on August uh 5th and 6th, no, August 4th and 5th, and Lori Daybell, her hearing is on August uh, 10th and 11th. So I will keep you posted. Oh, Lori Daybell's hearing is on, yeah, uh, August 10th and 11th. Yeah, Ch okay. Now, Chad uh, has some charges that were bought against him last week. I don't want to get into that right now. I want to save that to another podcast because I am running a little overtime and I want to get this published. 
But I will keep you updated on Chad Day Bell since I bought him up last week. Or two weeks ago, I should say. In the meantime, I'm Kevin Williams, and I will talk to you later.